Roundtable Osteuropa. Ein Podcast des Zentrums für Osteuropa und internationale Studien. Welcome to a new episode of our podcast Roundtable Eastern Europe. In the last episode, we have discussed the migration crisis at the EU-Belarus border. Today, we want to speak about a different aspect of migration politics, repatriation laws. In the recent past, Russia has been on the news for handing out Russian passports to citizens of other former Soviet countries. While this was often called passportization, this is in a broader context of something that we call repatriation politics. Today we want to unpack what is behind this term. For this I have two Zeus experts with me today. Tatjana Zhozhenko has just recently joined Zeus from the Institutes for Human Sciences in Vienna. And she has worked extensively in politics of memory and national identity in post-Soviet borderlands. Welcome. Hello. And Sipilma Dajeva, who is um, a well-known uh, researcher from Zeus. She's uh, heading the research cluster Migration and Diversity here. Welcome, Sipilma. Hello, Stephanie. Great to be here. So let us start to um, have a look at the term in general. What is repatriation? General repatriation is a term uh, related to a process of forced or voluntary to another person, but it can be also an item to the place of origin or their country of nationality. When we talk about uh, repatriation policies, uh, usually it is related to voluntary return migration and to diaspora policy-making processes backed up by repatriation laws. And repatriation laws give members of a diaspora the right to return, to immigrate to their so-called keen state, And they also serve to maintain ties between the nation-state and immigrant or diasporic communities uh, living abroad. So the repatriation laws usually provide a specific preferential treatment, I would say, and privileges for ethnic diasporic immigrants. So repatriation is, a, you can say, the welcoming policy launched by nation-states and that introduce legal framework for attracting and binding former citizens, but also co-ethnates through a variety of programs. It could be in-gathering programs or specific diasporic policies. So it was the Second World War uh, that uh, voices of repatriation and diasporic return became more prominent. And in the age of uh, globalization and transnationalism, the list of nation-states elaborating the right of ethnic return is growing. The most prominent examples are the Israeli law of return, Aliyah, and the mass repatriation of ethnic Germans from Eastern Europe, Russia and Kazakhstan to Germany, according to the Vertriebenen and Aussiedler Gesetz, uh, started in the uh, 1950s and uh, continued in the 1990s uh, of the 19th century. So what began in Israel and Germany is today can be found in other nation states, in particular among post-socialist countries such as Hungary, Bulgaria, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia and Armenia. Uh, you know, I wanted to uh, ask what are the aims of those kinds of policies. What do you think? I was thinking behind the idea of 
Repatriation is the notion of the nation as an ethnic, cultural and linguistic community or a community of descent. And this notion goes beyond the the concept of political nation defined by citizenship. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the idea that the state has obligations towards members of this community, even if they are foreign citizens, mm-hmm. yeah, and they are kind of ties and bonds with these uh, citizens which ha- should be given the right of return. And of course, this right of return is rather abstract because for for many members of this community, they never lived in these countries. Yeah, they, Like the members, for example, people of Polish descent, which were uh, repatriated after uh, 1989, many of them never lived in the borders of Poland as a state. Yeah, They lived in the Russian Empire, they lived in the Soviet Union, they were, for example, resettled to Kazakhstan, but they never lived in Poland. Yeah? So if we go back to the case of Germany, which you also mentioned, who were those German repatriation programs or policies targeting? Who were they, who were they aiming at? Uh, this is a very good question. The repatriation law in Germany goes under the title Vertriebene Gesetz and Spätaussiedlergesetz. Uh, and according to this law, ethnic Germans uh, living in Eastern Europe, but also in the former Soviet Union, had a right to return to their historical homeland. And this uh, term, historical homeland, became quite prominent in the 90s in the former Soviet Union, based on the idea, what already Tatiana uh, mentioned, the idea of ethnic nation-state. Spätaussiedlergesetz, which was launched uh, in 1991, aims to invite ethnic Germans uh, who also have suffered uh, during the Soviet uh, time uh, because of uh, discrimination uh, they experienced uh, in their everyday life, because of deportation of Volga Germans, Uh, before and during the Second World War. Those ethnic Germans who were living in the territory of Volga, Germany and the Caucasus region, they have been deported to Siberia, to Kazakhstan. That's why we have the more than half of uh, Russian Germans living now in Germany. Their homeland is Kazakhstan and eastern and Siberian part of uh, Russian Federation. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a probably a well-known example for German listeners. What about if you look at Russia now? Maybe also looking back in time before we uh, before we talk about the current uh, situation and the recent changes in the law. How has Russia handled uh, repatriation policies or politics? And um, Sipima, you want to start? Yeah, I can start. But before I, uh, we look at specifically at the Russian repatriation law, I would just mention two aspects of the meaning of the repatriation law uh, from political and economic perspective. Because the main aim actually of, of this uh, resettlement program is uh, usually to counteract demographic decline and also to promote economic development of region and that would say to maintain the ethnic composition of the population. So, and consequently, in official uh, national discourses, it was also the case of Germany, 
that new karmas are usually represented as as a reproductive force, as a national good, uh, helping to combat the problems. So, as for the draft law on repatriation to the Russian Federation, which was submitted in June to the State Duma, we deal with a complex a law which is actually not new because there were various state resettlement programs serving already to attract Russian speakers from the former Soviet states in previous years, in the 90s and 2006. Among them, for instance, the state program of support voluntary return to Russia. And according to official statistics, the number of participants of these Russian resettlement programs is growing year by year. So before we <clears throat> look at the current situation, I would like to go back in time a little. Now it's 30 years since the Soviet Union uh, was dissolved, which means this was a, probably a turning point with a lot of new borders that had not been state borders before for many years. So if we look at, if we look at Russia now, how has Russia handled the repatriation after the Soviet Union? How did it treat its compatriots? Actually, in, in the 90s, immediately after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were millions of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers returning to the Russian Federation or moving to the Russian Federation from the uh, new independent states which emerged after the <clears throat> dissolution of the Soviet Union. But these people hardly got any state support and this was they were moving on their own initiative the the capacities of the state were too weak and uh, the government was preoccupied with other issues and actually radical russian nationalists criticized the uh, yeltsin government at that time for not paying attention for Russian compatriots and actually especially those who were trying to escape from uh, the ethnic conflicts and local wars on the territory of, of the Soviet Union. But later, in the next decade, I think the situation has changed slowly and then these various attempts to introduce some kind of systematic, systemic <laughs> policy towards compatriots. Um, as Tsipilma as, uh, said, it was this state, state program for voluntary resettlement of compatriots living abroad to Russia. And it was um, from 2012, it has become like a permanent program. But it was actually, again, often criticized for uh, the very kind of selected focus it had, because as you said, Tsipilma, it was actually aimed at counteracting the depopulation of certain regions of Russia like the Far East and, and uh, Siberia. And uh, the focus was very much on um, like young people with certain professional training which the Russian economy required. Yeah? And so maybe I'm now jumping too far ahead, I'm sorry, but I wanted to say that Actually, the new draft law was meant by the initiators and by the authors of this law as, as an attempt to widen the focus of this uh, repatriation legislation. And Konstantin Zatulin, who initiated this draft law, 
uh, explicitly said that we should move away from from this kind of the state program is more or less it's just like a recruitment of labor force but what we need is a institutionalized program which would help the, the Russian compatriots to return to the country. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I, I completely agree what uh, Tatiana said that regarding uh, these uh, programs recruiting for labor force. And now, according to this initiator, it would be more about recruiting for the nation, the, the Russian mm. nation. But the point is that according to the draft law, there isn't much discussion about who is actually a compatriot, who is eligible to apply for this program and to be returned to the homeland. So, because I don't think we have introduced it yet, so there is a new draft law that is presented. Uh, can you say mm-hmm. uh, something about the context? Yeah, according to this draft law, a variety of Russian speakers, including Ukrainians and uh, Belarusians, have right to the return to its historical homeland, and they can get Russian citizenship in a very simplified way. So it is somehow backed up by the constitution of the Russian Federation, and uh, it aims to, to provide uh, support to compatriots who live abroad, and they should also be protected by the Russian uh, state, which is the lay so in preventing their assimilation. And primarily in the states, and I quote, whose laws and practices create problems for the satisfaction of their national rights and interests of Russian compatriots. So comparing to previous uh, programs of the Russian Federation, the new draft law is a change in in the conceptualization of compatriots and the ways how this so-called return can take place. So what is what is new about it and what is the aim behind it, in your opinion, Zipilma? Um Perhaps here it's interesting to see at three aspects. First of all, the idea how to define the historical territory of Russia. Mm-hmm. In comparison to the previous uh, programs, it was uh, clear that it mostly targeted citizens of the former Soviet republics. But uh, according to the new law, it is somehow widened and uh, and also widened in historical perspective. The historical territory of Russia comprises regions in different historical periods, so including the Russian Empire, I would say. And um, and also it is mentioned the Russian Republic, the Russian Federation, USSR and the present Russian Federation. So it is not limited to the borders of the Soviet Union. For instance, this is uh, very interesting that they also mention a specific uh, ethnic groups uh, like Polish people who might be also have a right to return to the Russian Federation. Second, the second is how to define who are eligible to this program. And and here and here is a very interesting topic to discuss, uh, uh, Tatiana. At least, uh, the draft proposes to create a list of peoples, a list of peoples to have right for them, and explicitly they mention three ethnic groups like Russian, Ukrainians, and uh, Belarusians, because they are associated with a common historical destiny and culture, what we know in, in, in German language, Schicksalsgemeinschaft. And additionally, there are also a list of titular groups, uh, those who make up the multi-ethnic 
Russian Federation. And then there are also numerically small indigenous groups. Historical reside on territory of the Russian Federation. I would also ask where ends the Russian Federation regarding indigenous people. So in this sense, it's a new degree of constructing the Russian imperial, or reconstructing the Russian imperial homeland. And at the same time, we observe a modern state nation building taking place. Tatiana, maybe you can jump in here because you're, you've been studying memory and national identity <laughs> in post-Soviet borderlands. What is the national, what is, what concept of national identity are we looking at here? Or, yeah, how is it understood when you look at this law? Yeah, I think in already existing Russian legislation, there is some kind of tension between different conceptualizations Of, of a compatriot, who is a compatriot, who has this right for, for um, privileged treatment. And um, yeah, and I think one, one concept um, which was actually in the Russian legislation from 2003, the law on Russian citizenship, when former citizens of the USSR were supposed to be granted Russian citizenship via a simplified procedure if they declare their intent to acquire Russian citizenship. So one concept was everybody who lived in the in the Soviet Union actually belongs to this imagined community of compatriots. Another concept is according to language. If you speak Russian at home and if in the family, and I think the law says in the family, everyday life, and cultural sphere. But, but this new draft law actually makes an attempt to add also like a national dimension to the definition of compatriot and to define, as Tsipelma said, uh, national uh, categories and ethnic groups, which comprises idea of being a compatriot, including Russians as a state-forming people, Ukrainians and Belarusians uh, as connected to Russians by common culture and historical destiny, peoples living in the ethno-territorial administrative units, small indigenous people, and also other people historically living on the territory of the Russian Federation, which is, of course, a very wide uh, category. According to some um, critical voices, this creates, uh, of course, uh, some ground for, for ethnic tensions and maybe even conflicts, because if you start to prioritize some ethnic groups over others, it cannot go well in a country, multinational country like Russia. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This is a very important uh, issue regarding the different understanding of nation and uh, how uh, who is actually eligible to be a state-forming uh, ethnic group in this uh, multi-ethnic society. Just an example, uh, the new for this uh, draft law that they included uh, not only Russian ethnic group as a state-forming nationality, but also Ukrainians and Belarusian people. And this is new regarding the Belarusian people because uh, according to official statistics going back also to the Soviet time, numerically indeed there was in the always Russian ethnic group as the majority group and the second place took uh, Ukrainians and the third place actually was always mentioned as Tatar population. 
but now it's not the case, and this is an interesting development. Additionally, regarding the language, it's a very important thing, because 2020, Russian President Vladimir Putin, he introduced a new law that all Ukrainians and all Belarusians, uh, they are considered to be automatically as Russian speakers. So it means that the, those who citizens of Ukraine and citizens of Belarus, there is no need to go through the, let's say, sort of examination of your Russian knowledge mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. level. Anyway, uh, according to the new draft law, there is no need to, to go through examination. It's enough to, to, to have some kind of uh, uh, knowledge of Russian language and it can be proved just uh, during the conversation between the applicant and, and, uh, uh, and the clerk. This brings us to the concrete role that Russian repatriation politics played since uh, the annexation of Crimea and the start of the war in, in Donbass. Tatiana, how has, what role has those repatriation politics played and what was the response, mm -hmm. um, the Ukrainian response? Just a short footnote, footnote to what Palma said about Belarusians. I think it's a kind of contradictory uh, move to include Belarusians in this list because Russia and Belarus are there is a union state of Russia and Belarus, yeah, yes. and actually there is a kind of at least on paper an integration process going between the Russian Federation and Belarus, and uh, you cannot do both, yeah, you cannot somehow build. A union state and at the same time repatriate Belarusians to Russia. <laughs> uh, from the Ukrainian perspective, um, of course, this draft law is not really something new. It should be seen in as a continuity with previous legislative initiatives. And here one should probably start uh, with... with, with um, History in the last decades, economic and labor migration from Ukraine to Russia um, has been a significant phenomenon, yeah? But it was always a long way from an economic migrant to, to a Russian citizen for, for Ukrainians, and this way was long and complicated. And the war in Donbass uh, produced more than one million migrants which moved to Russia um, in 2014-15. And Russia was struggling with, the, the Russian state was struggling with integrating these Ukrainian citizens. And in May 2019, Vladimir Putin issued a decree which simplified the procedure for granting citizenship to Ukrainian citizens from non-government-controlled areas of the Donetsk and Lugansk oblast. And two months later, Putin's second decree extended the simplified rules for granting citizenship to the inhabitants of the government-controlled territories of the Donetsk and Lugansk oblast. So actually the whole the, the population of, of the Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts is, is now eligible for this simplified procedure, regardless if they live on controlled or uncontrolled territories. 
And according to, to this new procedure, Donbass residents are not requested to provide the proof of their Ukrainian citizenship being renounced. The next amendments also simplified the rules of granting citizenship to other categories of Russian citizens. For example, former residents of Crimea who had left the peninsula before March 2014, so which actually means if you lived in Crimea before uh, you, you have the right for, for, for Russian citizenship. And of course, behind this policy is not just um, the altruism of the Russian government. Uh, the issue of Donbass refugees has been used as part of the hybrid war against Ukraine. So Ukraine is accused of fueling this conflict and producing millions of refugees and causing this am amount of human suffering. And just to, maybe to come back what Tsipelma said before, also in this case, in uh, in the Ukrainian context, we can see that there are two different and sometimes even conflicting logics behind this legislation. So on the one hand, there is some kind of geopolitical logic. Uh, according to this logic, passportization policy in Ukraine is supposed to give Russia a leverage in the ongoing conflict with Ukraine. So the more Russian pairs of Russian passports you have in Ukraine, the easier it is to put pressure on Ukraine and interfere in Ukrainian politics under the pretext of protecting Russian citizens. But the second logic is economic and pragmatic, and um, we know um, that Russia, and especially some Russian regions, suffer from the depopulation and from its social and economic consequences, and uh, labor migration from Central Asia, while filling certain deficit of uh, non-qualified labor in big cities, often causes ethnic tensions and nurtures grassroots uh, nationalist sentiments. And in this context, Ukrainians who are culturally close to Russians and uh, are considered to be easily assimilated are regarded as welcome human resource for Russian economy. And especially also because the Western neighbors of Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia have become more welcoming for Ukrainian labor migrants in the last years and, and liberalized their legislation because they themselves suffer from the uh, labor immigration to the West. Yeah, So we know that many Polish citizens are working in, in Germany or in, in the Great Britain and to fill these jobs, they need more Ukrainian labor migrants. So there is a kind of going competition, if you wish, between Russia on the one hand and European countries on the other for the Ukrainian labor resources. Do you want to add something, Tsipima? Just to, to add some more example regarding this uh, mass distribution of the Russian passports outside of the Russian Federation, just going back a little bit, what you have mentioned known as a passportization tool, it's the same situation uh, took place in Georgia 
uh, in 2008 and, and before in the territories of Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So the uh, Russia's military intervention in the Republic of South Ossetia was supposedly to protect Russian citizens. But however, most of the Russian citizens uh, living in Ossetia were ethnically Ossetians and many had obtained Russian citizenship only months, few months earlier. So since you mentioned the um, example of Ossetia or Georgia, how, how about other post-Soviet states? Is there anything specific about post-Soviet states deal with uh, repatriation politics? And has this, uh, now looking back at 30 post-Soviet years, uh, what is the role of a Soviet concept of nationalities or is it not important anymore? I think it's important, very still very important and uh, Repatriation laws uh, have been launched by a number of post-Soviet republics, uh, particularly in Kazakhstan and also in Armenia. Kazakhstan was one of the first post-Soviet republics engaged in the right to return for ethnic Kazakhs, mostly living in other Central Asian countries, but also in, in China, Turkey and Mongolia. Uh, there is a, what they introduce a special term for newcomers, for compatriots, which is in Kazakhstani language, uh, is Oralman. And okay, the program was introduced and uh, 100,000 ethnic Kazakh people arrived uh, to Kazakhstan indeed. But it was, um, let's say, not that successful as uh, the government expected. Some of them, they remained in, in, in Kazakhstan and as a, also as a labor force and in particular as the tool to increase number of ethnic Kazakh people in the Republic of Kazakhstan. And uh, from that perspective, from demographic perspective, I think it's quite successful because if we compare the number of ethnic Kazakhs in the 90s, it was less than 40%. And uh, if you look at the statistics in 2015, more than 60% of the population is ethnic Kazakhs. But it is not only because of the return of newcomers, mostly because of emigration of non-Kazakh people from Kazakhstan, in particular to Germany. I talk about uh, uh, Russian Germans. So there is a, a various success with these whole programs. And if you look at Armenia, which is very much uh, engaged for years to implement its uh, repatriation law, also because of, also to combat the heavy depopulation of the country, there are only a few people really use this, this opportunity to return. Mm -hmm. uh, I just, sorry, mm -hmm. I forgot to, to mention that ethno-national, the ethnic components, does play an important role in the conceptualization of repatriation law in these countries. I mean, Kazakhstan, Armenia, or Kyrgyzstan, also Hungary. But if we look at the Russian version of this law, it is difficult. It's not necessarily the ethno-national component mm. in the forefront of the concept. And this is interesting. Yeah, I think Russia as a successor state of the, of the USSR defines compatriots, first of all, as former Soviet citizens and their descendants. And even on the websites, semi-official websites, which explain the repatriation legislation and give like legal advice, you will often find formulations like 
for those who feel nostalgic about the USSR. So they, this is how they define the target group is actually the like the former Soviet people, yeah. So this is the main difference, I would say, because other post-Soviet states, they have this idea of a titular nation, which is, of course, the result of Soviet nationalities politics. And they build a repatriation policies around this idea of titular nation. But if I may, I wanted to add something on in this context of the 30 years of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and what role the Soviet... Uh, not the, just the Soviet concept of nationalities had, but actually the Soviet policies of moving people around, yeah, and Soviet policies of forced displacement during Stalin era, when actually millions of people, due to collectivization politics, deculacization, expulsions, forced resettlement of ethnic groups, they became target of these policies and. For example, in case of Ukraine, not only millions of Ukrainians were, for example, de deported to Siberia or put in, in the Gulag, but also Crimean Tatars, for example, were resettled forcefully, ethnic Poles, Bulgarians, Armenians. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, actually some kind of wild repatriation has started because millions of people wanted to return to what they saw as their homeland, their ethnic homeland or national homeland. And in case of Ukraine, for example, the, the return of Crimean Tatars to Crimea is, a, I think, is a prominent example. So how people actually, uh, they were waiting for decades for this opportunity to return to their homeland. Yes. I, it's just very. <laughs> it's, a, it's an important aspect to see what is actually associated with repatriation. But uh, today, I think the Russia's uh, repatriation has more pragmatic meaning, and it has uh, some features of uh, uh, like a foreign policy tool with far-reaching imperial ambitions uh, in the past. Just to stress, the main factor of introducing a new law of repatriation is actually Russia's own national national interest and also interest in demographic uh, improvement. But it is not based on a demand from Russian-speaking living abroad. So we have uh, to do with uh, repatriation as a geopolitical uh, tool, and Tatiana uh, has already emphasized this aspect it remains open and I'm quite skeptical about uh, to what extent the new law will be a real pool factor for migration and mass uh, repatriation movement towards the Russian Federation uh, because the situation is quite different and difficult in, in this country. Yeah, we have been talking about other post-Soviet countries and their repatriation repatriation uh, policies. How does Ukraine deal with repatriation and or how does it counter the, the Russian uh, the Russian uh, passportization, for example? When the Soviet Union collapsed, there were millions of Ukrainians living outside of the borders of the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. And according to the Soviet census of uh, 1989, 6.8 million Ukrainians lived in the USSR but outside of the Soviet Ukraine. 
and of them 4.4 million in Russia and almost a million in Kazakhstan. Also in the West, according to some estimations, 2 million Ukrainians and persons of Ukrainian descent lives in the United States and around 1 million in Canada and around a million in um, Latin America. To this, we can add the new wave of labor migration after 1991, the so-called fourth wave when a lot of Ukrainians went to Europe or to other countries to earn money. And um, of course, the Ukrainian state and the Ukrainian government um, had, uh, sorry, I, I say it differently. Um, so when the Soviet Union collapsed, as I said, a lot of people were emigrating to Ukraine, uh, people of Ukrainian descent, and over one million immigrated to Ukraine in 1991, 1992, so only in two years. And these were mainly, for example, Ukrainians who in the Soviet era moved to like big construction sites in, in Siberia, uh, members of, of the Soviet military personnel in Russia or in Eastern Europe and their families. Yeah? And the Ukrainian law and citizenship actually guaranteed citizenship to the immigrants from Ukraine and their descendants, not just ethnic Ukrainians, but everybody with historical roots in Ukraine. So actually the, this concept was political rather than ethnic. Uh, but economic uh, resources have been limited in Ukraine to uh, launch a kind of ambitious repatriation program. And there have been recurrent public debates in Ukraine on how to attract uh, Ukrainian labor migrants and diaspora Ukrainians to the country. And in 2004, after the Orange Revolution, the official status of a foreign Ukrainian was introduced – which included certain rather symbolic entitlements, for example, the right to study in Ukrainian universities. In general, under Viktor Yushchenko, uh, Ukrainians living abroad for the first time came into the focus of the government and, and state policies, maybe due to the fact that his wife originates from an American-Ukrainian family and for the first time, uh, in the Yushchenko era, actually, Ukrainian diaspora has become a topic of public discussions. Yeah, And the same after the Yevromaidan, in a similar way, there was a campaign to lure Western-educated young Ukrainians back to the country and recruit them for the public service sector. And uh, again, this lasted for some years, but uh, had only limited success. And uh, I think what is also interesting that for, for the Ukrainian public discourse on this topic, the focus has been on the Western diaspora. So Ukrainians living in Europe, in Canada, in the US, labor migrants in Europe as bearers of non-Soviet mentality, of European values. So they are kind of seen as uh, welcomed <laughs> candidates for, for return and Ukrainians living in Russia have traditionally been given less attention as they are kind of implicitly considered already assimilated to Russia. I think the fact that the Ukrainian legislation does not allow double citizenship makes the repatriation for the Ukrainian diaspora 
especially in the West, not very attractive. And under President Zelensky, some kind of debate started that maybe this law should be changed and uh, Ukraine should allow double citizenship, but not to everybody. So, for example, not not for Russian citizens, but for citizens of the European countries. Yes, this is very interesting. This is so comparable to the situation in Armenia, which also struggles with the idea to attract their large diaspora living abroad, mostly Western diaspora who reside in US and Canada and France and whatever. And uh, for the uh, impoverished Armenian Republic, similar to Ukraine, mm. it's for them it's a, it would be ideal to bring back their compatriots, but mostly to tap also their resources, to tap their knowledge, know-how, and in this way to renew their national republic. So, thank you very much. As a bit of an outlook, maybe, uh, in your opinion, what do you think on the subject of migration beyond repatriation politics? Will post-Soviet states open up to migration from other countries as well? Yeah, Russia is quite famous uh, as an attractive place for labor migrants. Already take place, started in the mm. 90s and uh, from different post-Soviet uh, countries, from Central Asia, but also from Ukraine and Belarus. Uh, yeah, I wanted to say uh, something I forgot to say, that Ukraine, of course, as a result of the war in Donbass, has to deal with internally displaced persons, around two million people who need to be resettled, reintegrated, given jobs, provided for. And this is, of course, this made... Uh, the whole discussion on repatriation somehow secondary because Ukraine first has has to solve this urgent issue with the, the IDPs. Yeah, concerning your question on um, migration in a more general context, we know that that this is currently the crisis on the Belarusian-Polish border and the reaction from the Ukrainian side to some suggestions of German politicians saying that maybe Ukraine could take some of these people, actually a negative reaction and a kind of reaction of a populist sort. Yeah? I think it indicates that in the near future it's difficult to expect from from Ukraine more open policy in, in terms of, of integrating like refugees from the conflict zone, from the global south. But also, I think these people also consider countries like Ukraine and Belarus as transit countries. They don't see it as an attractive place to move. Thank you. What what we perhaps next, in the near future, can expect is attempts to produce a new soft power from the side of Russia and means that to improve its uh, image. And for that, there is an uh, a specific institution, a state-sponsored institution, which is called Rossatrudnichestva. It means uh, Russian cooperation under the leadership of uh, Yevgeny Primakov, who is the grandson of uh, former Prime Minister Primakov. And the idea of this, this institution is to promote a positive image of Russia through specific programs uh, for those Russian speakers living abroad but who do not necessarily want to move entirely to repatriate, but want to visit this country uh, within, a, for instance, homeland trips 
or for young people who want to study it at Russian universities. So they develop now new programs of free education at Russian universities. So that can be attractive for, for a citizen of the former Soviet Union, in particular those who, in particular for Central Asian republics of also Belarus and Ukraine. Thank you. So thanks to both of you for your expertise and um, thanks to the listeners for uh, joining us and see you next or hear you next time on Roundtable Eastern Europe. Thank you. Thank you very much for this uh, interesting discussion. <laughs>